Welcome to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode one for December 2022. Hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, Andrew Livingston gives us the real story behind the apparent shortage of eggs on supermarket shelves. Laura Hitchcock has been to the races. As usual, we'll have a selection of your letters to the editor. And Laura has also been to visit Guy Ritchie's Gritchie Brewery near Shaftesbury. And the transformation of a former NatWest branch into something a little more creative. But first, here's editor Laura Hitchcock. Hello. Here we are on our third Christmas issue. And here I am, just like I am every other month, trying to find something sensible, meaningful, worth saying, late, late on a Thursday night. As I write this, we publish in a few hours. I was going to mention the eggs issue, but Andrew Livingston beat me to it and he was far better. And then I was going to talk about football and the World Cup, but Pat Osborne beat me to that and again was better too. And actually, I think I just need to take a brief last one of the year moment to mention the team of people we have the genuine pride and pleasure to work with. Courtney and I thank you all. The BV simply could never happen each month without you. A special thank you has to go to Rachel Rowe and Andrew Livingston. Neither of them seems to know how to say no and they always find the story. Also to Tracy Beardsley for traversing the county to speak to ordinary people doing extraordinary things and for being really rather special. To my own personal cheerleader, Heather Brown, and her frankly rubbish cooking and photography. To Roger Guttridge, not only for his encyclopedic local knowledge, but for also his ever-ready help and advice. And of course, the powerhouse duo of Fanny Charles and Gay Piri Weir for their advice, for their support, and my perennial shame at my grammar failings. Between you and me, they are mean and ruthless sub-editors. But fret not, I'm safe, they don't edit this bit. I also now have anxiety that I've left a comma somewhere it shouldn't be. Thank you to every single one of the columnists, all of whom have become friends in my inbox, each of them tolerating my own brand of email chaos. Special mention to Barry Cuff, whose email probably my favourite of the month. Two words he sends me. Yeah, it is. Lastly, thank you for being here too. We hope you have a good month a wonderful Christmas, and that you worry less and laugh more. And we wish you a peaceful and happy 2023. Don't forget we'll be out later in January. We're taking Christmas off. Our biggest boy is coming home from America and we're closing the doors and switching off the computers. We think we've earned it. See you in the new year. News. A swift look at the baking aisle in your local supermarket will tell you that the UK egg industry is in crisis. Andrew Livingston reports. A... Muddle was the only way that West Dorset egg producer Tim Gelfs would describe the state of the egg industry at the moment. Walk down the baking aisle of your local supermarket and it's either bare of eggs, limiting the purchase of eggs, or worse, stocked with European imports. As with most farming at the moment, costs to produce eggs have soared since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. For months, egg producers have pleaded with supermarkets to increase the price they pay so that farmers can break even. Tim, who has 16,000 birds, is thankful he isn't affected. He cut ties with supermarkets more than a year ago to sell to North Dorset egg packers Fruits Eggs, who deliver to smaller independent shops and restaurants locally. Nevertheless, the Bemonster-based egg producer has been speaking passionately to news organisations to ensure his fellow farmers have a voice. He says, The supermarkets haven't increased the price they pay farmers, They use the excuse that with the cost of living crisis, the consumers wouldn't be able to afford it. But they have put up the price of eggs. They just haven't passed the increase on to the producers. Thanks to the supermarket actions, or lack of, the situation really is a muddle. 
In April, the British Free Range Egg Producers Association, that's the BFREPA, called a crisis meeting with the supermarkets to be held at the Pig and Poultry Fair in May. Tesco, Morrison's, Sainsbury's, Marks & Spencer, Waitrose, Asda, Aldi and Lidl were all invited. Not one of them attended. Warnings duly ignored, the supermarkets now have no eggs and are continuing to anger farmers by blaming the shortage on the avian influenza outbreak. They're using that as an excuse, says Tim. The consumers are very frustrated. The supermarkets are using it as a smokescreen against the real reason, which is that they simply haven't paid for the eggs. What we are seeing now is only the tip of the iceberg. We've lost nearly 5 million pullet placings where people haven't invested in a new flock over the past 10 months. We won't really feel the effects until next year. The national flock has decreased by 13%. Sheds that previously housed thousands of birds now sit empty, waiting for the price of eggs to rise to a point where farmers can make a profit. In the last two weeks, the cost of eggs has risen in supermarkets by more than 20%, and it will continue to rise as the number of eggs decreases. Already, Sainsbury's have been importing Italian eggs, says Tim. I reckon by Christmas they will all be importing eggs which is quite frustrating, as they're all committed to the lion-coded British eggs. So they've thrown their commitment out the window. European eggs do not have the same vigorous salmonella testing as the UK industry, meaning that vulnerable people, that's children, pregnant women and the elderly, shouldn't eat these eggs runny. Farmers are now worried about the irreparable damage that's being done to consumers' confidence in something as simple as an egg. In the 1980s, the industry experienced a similar situation when Edwina Curry, the then health minister, said that there was a salmonella epidemic in British eggs. She later had to resign from her position due to the damage she caused to the industry with her false statement. It's taken us 30 years since Edwina Curry and the salmonella threat in the 80s to get the eggs per capita back to where it was, says Tim. Where is it going to be at the end of this crisis? People will switch from eggs and go and buy something else and we will struggle to get them back. The National Farmers Union has called for the government to intervene and ensure that farmers' livelihoods are secured, but the new DEFRA minister, Mark Spencer, has said that the government will not step in. However, West Dorset MP Chris Loder has been in direct communication with his constituent, Tim, and has taken the matter to Westminster. He gave an impassioned speech at the Westminster Hall debate support for British farming. Chris Loder said, The Groceries Code Adjudicator, the GCA, the regulator for supermarkets, farms and price controls, needs to be given more teeth and to have greater control so that our farmers are not suppressed. Most of my local farmers in West Dorset tell me they don't want to receive government subsidies. But they have to. And why do they have to? More often than not, they're forced into that position because the GCA is not doing its job and is allowing supermarkets to dominate the field. In my opinion, the government is ultimately subsidising supermarket profits. That has to stop. Tim Gelfs is calling for new legislation to give farmers the confidence to invest in producing food. He says, I think the government needs to be serious about food security and introduce some legislation to take some of the power away from the supermarkets and give it back to the farmers. That's not just eggs, that's all products, else we'll be back at this point again when we have another crisis. And I think the crises are going to be more often because of climate change and civil unrest around the world. When there's fights in aisles over eggs like there were over toilet rolls, then the government will step in. At the moment, it's all lip service, because although we've got a shortage of eggs, it's more of an inconvenience than a disaster. But it's only going to get worse. 
At the Westminster debate, Chris Loder concurred with his constituents' view on the outlook for the British egg industry. He said, I'm afraid this is the beginning of a ticking time bomb. If ever there was a time that this House had to urge the government to give the groceries code adjudicator the teeth it needs to sort this mess out, it's now. If we think there is difficulty in the market today, I can assure this chamber that in less than 12 months' time, we will not be in a situation where we have a reduction in eggs available for sale to consumers. We will be lucky if we have any eggs on the shelves at all. A trip to the races always looked like it might be fun, but to be honest, it's not really for the likes of me, is it? My dad was a milkman. We lived in a big Essex town. Horses were as much a part of my home life as art, ballet and opera. Not. And yet I grew up horse mad, absorbing everything I could from books. Ruby Ferguson's Jill series, the Pulling Thompson sisters' entire back catalogue, Misty of Cinquotique, though I still have no clue where that actually is. I had them all. I paid attention. I studied riding theory, just in case. I finally got on a horse for real in my 20s. Turns out you can learn a surprising amount from books, but a real horse definitely helps. Children's books about Jim Carners and show jumping abounded, of course, but horse racing? Not at all. If you're not introduced to it or grow up with it, it's frankly a closed, mysterious and mildly intimidating world, even to a grown-up. So when we were invited to Wincanton Racecourse for Badger Beers Day, of course I was keen, but I swiftly went looking for help. We're incredibly lucky to have a pair of the UK's top thoroughbred breeders, Lucy and Doug Proctor, writing for us. The first worry, obviously, was what do you wear to go racing? Well, apparently, on your average race day, is pretty much anything goes. You'll see a lot of tweed, said Doug, but mostly because it's what most farmers wear most days. Go with anything practical for the weather. A race course is an exposed place in November. But we were attending one of the biggest race days in Wincanton's racing calendar, which is more dressy. So Lucy offered some helpful hints on the ladies' wear front. Go for long boots with dark trousers or a skirt and woolly tights. I always opt for thick polo neck sweater, or three, and then add a scarf. There's nothing more miserable than being inappropriately dressed for the weather. A weatherproof coat is a must. Most people will be in a tweed or plain coloured long wool coat or a barber type beige waterproof overcoat. And if you've got a cap of some kind of hat, it's much easier than juggling an umbrella when it's raining. So, feeling confident from our pro what to wear tips, we headed to the main gates on race day. It was busy, and as we watched the queue, we were fascinated by who was there because it actually seemed to be everyone. Tweed-clad country types hunkered against the rain in their battered wax jackets and flat caps. Sharply suited men, clearly there for a lad's day out, queued noisily behind retired couples happily chatting. We saw wellies and trainers lined up alongside Dolce & Gabbana and Dubarry boots. Doug was right, there isn't a type of person who goes racing. It was rapidly obvious that everybody goes. We'd been missing out. Once inside the gate, we bought a race card. £3.50, do get one, even if you're not planning on betting. The whole day makes sense once you have one. We soon worked out the system of what to see, and obviously the day revolves around the races, but we quickly understood that it actually starts in the parade ring, sometimes called the paddock. Head there first. You can see the horses circling as they wait for the jockeys. I was actually surprised just how close we were able to stand, and we swiftly came aware that racehorses are stunning, powerful, elegant, very different from the horses grazing in the field on your Sunday walk. So now's the point you look at your race card and decide who you're rooting for. The card's a bit overwhelming at first. If you're a statistician, you'll feel right at home. But there's a key to what all the numbers mean, from the weights of the horses are carrying, to the names of the owner, the trainer, the jockey, how far they've travelled, a rough guide to current form. But if you're a racing pro like me, you'll obviously eye up the horses as they walk past and 
pick the prettiest one. Once the jockeys arrive and mount up, the tide of the crowd flows back towards the track. Usually the viewing areas are separated according to your ticket entry. The closer the finishing post, the more expensive the entry price, obviously. But Badgerbeer's chase day was single enclosure day, meaning anyone could stand anywhere. The stand was packed as most people chose to shelter from the weather, but working on Doug's advice, we headed for a gap at the side of the track, ignoring the shivering sideways rain. I've obviously watched the odd horse race on the television. Who hasn't watched the Grand National? But the experience of standing right there on the track was new and entirely unexpected. The crowd, the weather, suddenly horse racing was tangible, something physical. And then the horses pounded past on the first circuit, just feet away from where we stood. The noise from the stand began to build. The weather was completely forgotten and we found ourselves cheering with the crowd as the pace picked up for the second circuit. Our eyes glued to the big screen until they rounded for the final straight and came into actual view. We could feel the horses approaching. It's it's a cliche to talk about the thunder of hooves, but what other word is there? The noise was visceral. We were sandwiched between the horses galloping past and the wall of sound from the crowd hollering them home. As they passed the finishing post, I was beaming and keen to head straight back to the parade ring and do it all again. But this time, I tried an actual bet. Again, don't be afraid. The bookies make it easy. That's how they make their money. Of course, they want to help you. And the solid advice we had was, if you're not sure, go for the favourite. They're tipped to win because they're judged to be the best horse on the course, so it's never a bad idea. Nearly all the course bookies had banners declaring their minimum bet as £1 or £2. So don't be ashamed to put even a tiny amount on. It really doesn't matter. And some even are contactless if, like us, you forget to bring some cash. So just look for that sign on their board. We actually spent more on coffee than we did on betting. But it was so much fun choosing a horse, cheering them on, going to collect your winnings, which we promptly bet on the next race, of course. We were part of the crowd jumping and cheering local horse Frodon to victory in the 61st Badgerbeer Handicap Chase. We picked a couple of winners. We grabbed a really good burger from a stand, warming coffee from another. We avoided the busy bars, actually, and we forgot to worry about the weather. We bumped into some old friends and saw many others doing the same. It turns out horse racing isn't about having a slightly seedy day out gambling, nor is it just for the poshest of hat wearers chatting over a whiskey politely. It's just a really fun, relaxed, sociable day. And the attitude to us, as blatantly obvious absolute race virgins, was friendly, welcoming. There's always someone who knows the answer to a question. Just ask the nearest person who looks like they might know what they're doing. On top of which, you get to be up close to some of the most beautiful animals on earth. So the big question, would we go for another day at the races? Well, the answer to that is that we're already marking the calendar and booking up friends to come with us next time. Letters to the Editor Mike Hall writes for and on behalf of the trustees of Cedars Castle Hill about the Castle Hill closure. I'm writing on behalf of the trustees of Cedars Castle Hill to confirm that we've reluctantly concluded we have to close Castle Hill House, CHH, and combine our residential and nursing activities under a single roof at our other care home, the Cedars, This move is a preemptive response to the financial, staff and funding-related challenges that are threatening to overwhelm the care sector. Essentially, we'll offer the 11 current residents of CHH a transfer to a ground-floor room at the Cedars where they'll be surrounded by those they know well and cared for by staff familiar to them. All this is to be smoothly achieved by Christmas. In the meantime, CHH will be mothballed but continue to provide office facilities and accommodation for staff, while we search for a longer-term solution for the building. We recognise that closing CHH may well cause some uncertainty and personal upset. Naturally, we're sorry about this, 
but we're a small charity facing significant challenges and feel we have to take action before we're overwhelmed by events. However, we firmly believe that this move will strengthen our position to the benefit of residents, staff, families and the local community. On Sonas and Roger, this is an email from Sandy Milne. I was delighted to read the article about Sonas, the upholsterer in your latest edition, the BV November 22. I attended an upholstery course with Sonas in Wimborne four or five years ago, where she gave me the very best advice on recovering two wing chairs, which have been greatly admired. She is a lovely person. Then I turned over a few pages where I read the article by Roger Guttridge about the workhouse in Shaftesbury. We recently went on a great rail journey holiday to Italy, and a gentleman who was on tour with us overheard us saying we came from near Shaftesbury. We couldn't believe it when he told us his parents were the last people to run the workhouse in Shaftesbury, and he had gone to school in Mockham. We didn't even know there had been a workhouse in Shaftesbury, let alone where it was, and that a workhouse was still in operation until relatively recent times. Thank you for a good read. Janet Moon in Wimborne writes to say, I do love your random 19 column. It's always fun and never fails to teach me something I didn't know about the interviewee. I've always been a fan of the BBC's The Repair Shop, but I had no idea that Sonaz was from Dorset. You rather skimmed over it in your introduction, but the fact that she moved to Dorset as a presumably very young person with no connection here beyond her work and then took on a position as the only female apprentice at Sunseeker, what strength of character that shows. I attended the opening of 1855 in Sturman St Newton this week just to meet her in person. The shop was excellent too, and I'll definitely be back. And she was just as lovely as she's appeared in your column. Thank you. Next, a letter from the Thomas and Jane Rose Family Society in Australia. Further to Roger Guttridge's excellent article on the family emigrating from Sturmitz to Newton to Australia, on the 16th of January 2023, it'll be 230 years since the arrival of Thomas and Jane Rose and their four children as the first family of free settlers. Our society is holding a series of events culminating in a reenactment of their arrival aboard the Bologna, taking place aboard a tall ship coming into Sydney Cove on the morning of the 16th of January. Bernie Isted, who's secretary of the Kilmington and Sturton WI, writes about help for the food bank. I'm the secretary of Kilmington and Sturton WI, and we recently held our Christmas celebration meeting where we had a buffet for members and carols and readings. This year, we asked our members to bring an item or two to donate to the Gillingham Food Bank, and they more than responded. We were delighted to deliver all the food to the food bank, and the money we raised for our raffle ticket sales on the night, £110, will also be going to them. We always make a charitable donation at Christmas, as a WI, but this year, with the cost-of-living crisis ever more apparent, our members were delighted to be able to help such a worthy cause. An appeal from the Wincanton Under-18 Football Club. Could you be a sponsor for our Under-18s football team for the 2023-24 season? We desperately need donations towards, and sponsors for, home and away kit, training kit and tracksuits, training and match balls and equipment, registration and insurance costs. For more information, please contact Sean Corney on 07763 708 125 
or email me on Sean Corney, and that's S-E-A-N-C-O-R-N-E-Y, at gmail.com. And there's an appeal from Laura calling all non-Dorset readers and listeners. We want you to email us. We know that we have readers in more than 100 different countries. We're fascinated and would love to know where you are and why you read the BV every month. Did you used to live here? Do you have relatives here still? Are you just a fan of Dorset? Please email letters at theblackmoorvale.co.uk and we'll share some more of the stories. Hidden away in a fold of Cranbourne Chase outside Shaftesbury, Gritchie Brewery is crafting a fine reputation. Laura Hitchcock reports. Ask North Dorset residents about Gritchie Brewery and you get one of two answers. The first is usually, oh, I love their beer. The second is, oh, that's Guy Ritchie, isn't it? And to be honest, it's often said with a mildly belittling tone. Because yes, this is film director, producer and screenwriter Guy Ritchie's company. But it's very clear that this is no vanity project. Beyond the local area where people know that Guy Ritchie lives on the estate just north of Shaftesbury, the Gritchie branding is never advertised with Guy Ritchie's name. The beer is expected to stand on its own merits, though perhaps with a little A-list movie advertising help. Watch the opening scenes of The Gentleman closely and you'll see Matthew McConaughey enjoying a pint of Gritchie's English law before he leaves the pub and passes a Gritchie delivery van. And the business is entirely self-supporting. It's a bit frustrating in some ways, says Gritchie Brewery's Nick Brown, who spent nine years as a police officer in Dorset before emigrating to Australia with his wife to serve in the Australian police. They returned to the UK as Covid restrictions lifted and, looking for a change in career, Nick applied to Gritchie Brewery. Now he's overseeing sales and running the brewery's busy schedule of attendance at events. Their horsebox bar is a familiar sight at shows and fairs across the South. Everyone thinks it's a massive boon to have this famous name behind the brand, Nick continues, but actually, it's almost like we have to work twice as hard to have the beer taken seriously by some people. So many celebrities just put their name on someone else's product and await the financial return. But Guy's a very exacting boss. He's in the office most days that he's here in Dorset. He's really hands-on with the business. Working from Gritchie's Ashcombe Estate, tucked away in the chalk hills behind Shaftesbury, the Gritchie Brewing Company's staff have a daily view that many would envy. Standing in the yard, surrounded by the usual rural sounds of birds, running water and a distant tractor, there's no hint that a busy brewery is inside the buildings surrounding the peaceful courtyard. We do everything here except canning and bottling, says Nick. We did try bottling ourselves, but the machinery takes up so much space. Economically, it was better to outsource it. But the Maris Otter Barley has grown on the Ashcombe Estate. We draw water from a borehole on the estate, we brew the beer here, and everything is packaged in these buildings by the team. We even do all our own deliveries where possible, serving all the local outlets ourselves, right along the south coast, plus weekly runs to London for Guy's Law of the Land pub in Fitzrovia. We literally follow the product from field to bar. We have a huge drive to be as environmentally conscious as possible. Even the kegs are ours, so they can be constantly recycled and reused. Head brewer Alex Blees explained the basic brewing process, starting with the sacks of barley arriving back at the farmer's malt. 
It's poured into the mash tun with hot water to create a mash. After 45 minutes, the sweet liquid wort is washed into a kettle or copper, where it's boiled for an hour and the hops are added at various stages, depending on which beer is being made. Local hops would be cheapest, obviously, he says, but British hops tend to be dark and musky flavoured. Great for traditional British bitter ales, but a modern IPA needs a bright, zesty flavour, so we have to go further afield. The now redundant grain isn't wasted. It's collected by a local farmer to use for animal feed. Gritchie brew 4,100 litre batches, limited by the size of their tanks. Every part of the equipment and process is carefully selected and controlled. We're all about consistency, says Alex. We believe in do it once, do it right. An independent craft brewery lives and dies by the reputation of its product. Because we're making relatively small batches, we can be really responsive and brew to demand, which also means very little wastage. Nick agrees. It's no good us selling the beer into a pub and having the landlord tell us the customers don't like it this week because it's not as good as last time. They trust us always to provide the same product. If their customers like it, the landlords will buy it. If we're reliable in our product, we get loyalty from our customers in return. It's good for everyone. It's been a tough year for beer. There's been a 40 to 50% increase in raw material costs since last summer. Heineken recently announced that they're increasing their prices by 15% in January. But Alex is feeling positive. Because we do so much ourselves, a lot of our costs are negated, using our own water from a borehole, for example, and selling more cask beer which doesn't require CO2. We don't plan to raise prices at all, if we can possibly help it. Nick feels they also have some business advantages over their bigger competitors. We don't have their scale, obviously, but we're a small team of seven, three in production, two on deliveries, Sally in the office and me. And no matter what our official job is, really, we all do everything. We were all labelling this morning, getting product packaged up. But that means we have a very close relationship with our customers and can react quickly to their needs. We've been able to offer local pubs smaller casks, for instance. Many of them are reducing their opening hours due to their own staffing and cost issues. So they don't want a large keg opened, which they only have three days to sell through. We can also respond swiftly. We can generally get stock out to them within 24 hours, often same day, if they're not far. And we're always on the end of the phone for advice and a chat. The whole team is aware of the need to balance the cask ales and traditional tastes of their rural heart, while also serving the city palates of their London fans. Alex is constantly looking at new flavours and ways to develop. But for now, keep your eyes peeled for the new Galaxy New England IPA. We finished our tour in the break room with a swift half of the new beer, and it's light, slightly citrusy, explosively smooth and astonishingly delicious. And you can buy Gritchie beer at the following local outlets. Dyke's Supermarket, Anstey Pick Your Own Farm, Shaftesbury Wines, Udder Farm Shop, Shaftesbury Abbey, Morrison's Shaftesbury, or online at gritchiebrew.com forward slash shop. Or ask your local freehouse landlord if he'll stock it. The eclectic new browsing bank of artisans and traders has proved an instant hit in the town. Laura Hitchcock reports. 
The interior of the old NetWest Bank in Stimmerston Newton has been veiled in secrecy for many months. Passers-by couldn't see through the boarded-up windows, and the solid bank doors remained firmly closed to casual onlookers. The Stewarts to Newton Benefit Society Limited took over the lease of the old building last year and have been promising an indoor market of artisans. The BV got a sneak peek inside ahead of the official opening, and it was a rich and beautiful surprise. Gone is the dull, austere banking interior. Instead, the building has been stripped back to its elegant, airy bones, even revealing an original fireplace that no one knew was there. The history of the building has been used as a feature, not hidden and decorated over, creating a relaxed and welcoming atmosphere. The space is light and airy, and is as far removed as possible from the simple, jumbled collection of local makers' items that was clearly expected by invited guests. Instead, the inviting interior showcases an eclectic bank of more than 30 carefully selected artisans. 1855 was officially opened by Sonaz, repair shop expert, on Friday the 25th of November at 4pm. Every single trader is connected to the Blackmore Vale area, manager Cheryl Baston told the BV. The one exception is Wolf Wine, who are based in Bath. However, they have links to Sturminster Newton's only winemaker, and next year will be stocking Sturminster's only wine. We do still have a few trader spaces available, but there is an application and interview process to go through, whether for an artist, an artisan craftsperson, a drinks producer, or a trader. The product has to sit well in the store, complement the other traders, and be of an equivalent high standard. The result of this due care and attention to detail is a vastly varied mix of items which oddly work together in a room comfortably filled with bare brick, wood and wire cages strewn with industrial lighting. Traders pay a very small rent for their space, said Cheryl, and then SNBS take a 10% commission on all sales. We're a non-profit, however. After all costs are covered, all profits go back into regeneration projects for the town. The old bank manager's office to the right of the entrance is currently filled with a range of bespoke cabinets by the to Newton furniture maker, Original Crate Furniture, who has been creating distinctive bespoke wooden furniture on Sturminster's Butt Ponds trading estate for almost 10 years, and yet is little known in the town. In the main shop area, each of the individual traders has a distinctly designed section to display their products. The tall, freestanding glass case, full of Elizabeth Shewan's beautiful bronze jewellery, caused more than one casual browser to pause. Lily P's beautiful candles and melts are next-door neighbours to local artist Beth Wood's wildlife paintings. Stunning wooden sculptures from Jamie Hart stand alone in the centre of the floor, with a background of jewel-like coloured fabrics from Treasures from the Silk Road. It's just wonderful, commented one browser. It's so welcoming and such a surprise. Between you and me, I did not expect it to be this fabulous, said another. I've already bought something, said a third. It's very clear that 1855 will quickly become a destination shop for the town, offering such a wide range of choices. Every browse around the shop reveals a new item. Late night opening for the weekends will allow a visit after work for a bottle of wine or last minute gift, and Sunday opening will hopefully encourage more trailway visitors to continue their walks up and through the town. 1855 is open Monday and Tuesdays 10 till 4, Wednesday to Friday 10 till 7.30, Saturday 10 till 4, and Sunday 11 to 3. And on a personal note, as a former employee of NatWest and an occasional visitor to Sturminster Newton Branch, I can't wait to see what they've done with it. 
Well, that's all we have time for in this, the first episode of the December 2022 BV Magazine podcast. So it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next week, it's goodbye too from me, Jenny Devitt.